In this special episode of Bad Faith Podcast, founder and owner of Eaton Workshop, Catherine Lowe, discusses with Barrett the meaning and beginnings of how he developed his philosophy on ethnocide while a member of Eaton House. In a wide-ranging conversation, they discuss how ethnocide shows up in the world today and how we can build a new culture in utopia. After some pleasantries, Cat and Barrett dive into how he developed the word ethnocide. How it started is like as a journalist, I write about race and culture quite a bit. And at some point it hit me that what I was trying to say, people weren't fully grasping. They'd get, they'd like my stories, but the part they'd really be engaged with were things that for points I wasn't trying to make, which was like really peculiar. So I just wanted to start experimenting with my own work to figure out how I could articulate my ideas more clearly to people. And it hit me that there just wasn't a word. And so I needed to go find or create a word. And with the U.S., we talk about everything along like racial dynamics. But like Mm -hmm. our ideas of race are just constructs that colonizers made. So if we're really going to talk about what ails our society, we have to have a conversation that precedes race, you know, because you know, these classifications of black and white don't have an attachment to place. It's just, you know, Europeans have said that we're going to call our, they're going to call themselves that and they're going to call other people this and that's just what they're doing. Um, and so that's where I started focusing on culture a lot. And then um, with culture, the word that stuck out was ethnocide because it's the destruction of culture. And then I stumbled onto the work of Raphael Lemkin, who created the word genocide. And for Lemkin, genocide was the destruction of people, and ethnocide was the destruction of culture. And he thought they'd be interwoven because, like, the Jewish people were a people in a culture, and the Nazis were targeting them specifically for their culture. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, like, it couldn't just be they're killing random people, it was a people with a culture. And mm-hmm. same thing with the Armenians in Turkey, same, same dynamic. But scholars and his friends decided that genocide was the word that you needed because when you kill the people, the culture goes with it. So that encompasses both of the points. And ethnocide was forgotten. And then I, so I decided to take on that word and apply it to the transatlantic slave trade because mm-hmm. with the with the slave trade, the goal was to extract African people and keep the people mm-hmm. and forcefully remove their culture so that you could create a society. Mm-hmm that has that perpetual exploitation and division and oppression as like a a foundational component of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think America is. And that's, that's just Mm -hmm. the only way we know how to live is in this fractured way that's ethnocidal. And there, and then Mm -hmm. that breeds, leads into conversations about cultural appropriation, because Mm -hmm. if you have a culture that's like a colonizing culture and they survive by taking the culture from African people so that they can exploit African mm-hmm. people via enslavement and you know prison industrial complex and, and predatory mm-hmm. lending and all that kind of stuff. This is a culture that exists from taking other people's culture and feeling that that taking mm-hmm. is beneficial. And now that's just appropriation and manifests in so many ways in America. And so mm-hmm. ethnocide gave me a really clear intellectual framework for my, my journalistic work um but Mm -hmm. as a philosopher and knowing the importance of words i haven't like rushed to put that word out there just yet because you have to do your Mm -hmm. due diligence make sure you've covered all the bases 
before it, it it hits the world. So like this zine's actually gonna be the first time that like mm-hmm. this word's gonna be like big and loud and people can talk to me about mm-hmm. it because I've been spending well over a year thinking about it and fleshing mm-hmm. it out. Um, mm-hmm. And so then the second word is evtopia and it's it's EU, but with the Greek pronunciation, mm-hmm. you can pronounce the U like a V. And that's just kind of to mm-hmm. distinguish it so we don't have people saying utopia and utopia mm. because mm. you just, you know, you know, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So with evtopia, that's how I envision you countering an ethnocidal space. And you can do evtopian stuff regardless mm. of whether you live in a society that's governed by ethnocide. But mm-hmm. with to counter the, the division, the systemic division and all the other you know negative things of ethnocide and etopian philosophy or actions etopia means good place so mm-hmm. now the question is like what's a good place at like an individual and at a collective level and so uh because the word utopia eu means good and topia means place and it, mm-hmm. it, it i view it as like an intellectual progression from the word utopia because utopia that word's it's like a farce. It's just a satire mm-hmm. because Thomas More, when he made it in 1516, he got Topia, Topos, place, and then he got the Greek prefix for good, which is EU, and the Greek mm. prefix for, for non-existent, OU, and it's cut mm. off the O and the E to make a new word that was good place that doesn't exist. And so mm. Westerners have been obsessed for 500 years to try to make good places that can't exist. And they've been disasters. Mm. Like America was supposed to be a utopia, you know? Mm-hmm. And so now we need to focus on making good places that do exist. And so mm-hmm. the practical application of a utopia is um, like the town square. Mm-hmm. Because you create that space, that equitable gathering space at the heart of a city that encourages and forces people, regardless of of job or income or whatever to congregate in an equitable fashion and like the best cities mm-hmm. in Europe like the town square is at the beginning like the creation of town squares help get Europe out of the dark mm-hmm. ages and allow enlightenment and the renaissance to happen and so mm-hmm. these practices you know at a practical level town squares but also you know, mm-hmm. you know mindfulness and things like that can also help make a person uh, an utopian mm-hmm. individual, like make themselves a good place and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so that's kind of how I came up with the ideas. Like I had to start with trying to articulate mm. the, the how I saw my own society. And since like mm-hmm. America's ethnocidal, they're not the people like my English, my education is being given to me by people who don't have my best interests at heart. You know, like mm-hmm. black people aren't here for the benefit of black people. Like that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. And so due to this dynamic, there's not going to be a cultural impetus to educate me of the words I need to articulate how bad my society is. Like there's mm-hmm. no one's going to create that. Uh, so mm-hmm. I had to, then make the word or find a, a, a word from a, a Jewish individual who would just escape like a profound trauma to then apply that. And then once that word was created, then it's like, okay, now let me create a word so that I can counter that. Because if you just live and focus on ethnocide all the time, mm-hmm. you just get sad and depressed and think the world's super bleak. And you have to like 
come up with some ideas to get you get yourself out of the depression you kind of have given yourself by becoming more aware. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's that. Thank you. Um, a lot of what you said made me think of a lot of things that relate to what I'm trying to do with Eden, but also even my previous work as a, I studied social cultural anthropology and a lot of it was actually the, uh, critique and analysis of anthropology as this, Colonial, basically a colonialist discipline where there was like this white man who would come study people of color societies um, or the, the third world and then see it through those lenses. So one of the things that really caught me about what you just said was the power of reclaiming words from your own place and your own heritage. Because uh, if you're talking about philosophy, typically the people that we study are basically like old white guys, right? Or Western philosophers, but you're taking their ideas and you're subverting and evolving it to be from another place, basically to be from this place of, um, I guess our heritage as people of color or as non-white um, people from the non-white, non-predominant colonialist culture. So there's a huge power in you making your own words and also taking the lineage of, this predominantly white hege hegemonic uh, narrative and then reclaiming those own words for how you see the world and then how also you're trying to empower basically the new use of words and meaning for groups that we, you know, would like to empower and work with Yeah, no, to have that moment. Yeah, thanks. Um, that's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do because the the fact is, is that America as a place doesn't value philosophy as like a mainstream like discipline mm -hmm. or even something that people, everyday people are supposed to have. But if you look at so many cultures throughout the world, there are words that are distinct to that place that express just like a philosophy that's so ubiquitous that the people there just don't even understand. Like, it's hard for them to grasp the significance because it's always been there. And like America, you mm -hmm. notice there will always be some fad where there's like a, a word from Japan that's like, this is how the Japanese, mm -hmm. like, like Ikigai is like really popular now. Mm -hmm. But like <laughs> that is just a word that is just like an everyday casual philosophy that Japanese mm -hmm. people have. Because like we have to create a way to survive in our culture, mm -hmm. which is attached to this physical place. And from that, now let's figure out a way to make life meaningful. Because, and we, we have to, and that word and that perspective is going to be unique to like where we are geographically. Like if you live in say like Northern Europe, the word or the philosophy you're going to come up with is something that's going to make you resilient and able to su survive through the harsh winters. You know, mm -hmm. if you live in Italy, mm -hmm. the word you're going to come up with is something about how to embrace like nature and be out in the environment and be one with, you know, trees and stuff like that, because you get to be outside all the time. Like America, we don't spend the time coming up with these words or these casual philosophies to help make ourselves better. What we try to do is appropriate the culture from someplace else and try to use it in a way that's organic, but we don't have that cultural foundation to use it apart from it mm -hmm. being like some sort of fad that, you know, this year we really like Ikigai or mm -hmm. next year we really like, like Huga or the, you know, the Danish thing, mm -hmm. and, you know, Marie Kondo is the big thing, but like it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fad that's like more dependent on the markets 
and not like mm-hmm. long-term sustainable, you know, cultural sustainability because mm-hmm. we're ethnocidal. We don't, we don't know how to mm-hmm. make culture how most of the world has been doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you coining this word ethnocide is super important, especially today where I think many people assume that we've gotten past racism or gotten past, you know, the horrors of the past. And I saw a really good, I saw that you quoted Brian Stevenson in your document. And I saw a really good documentary about him at AFI Docs uh, recently, I think earlier this year, where he basically says lynching and slavery, the contemporary forums still exist today, just in disguise. And that's what you're getting at with ethnocide, that there's this insidious destruction of culture and also oppression of people's, you know, heritage and true selves, even if you're not literally killing or imprisoning people, that violence is still occurring on this psychological, cultural, social, personal basis. A hundred percent. Like, it's kind of like genocide is really easy to, to recognize because killing a person is like immediate, like it happens in a second and that person's dead and they never come back. But like the slow erosion of like purpose and life, you know, like it's harder for people to see that that's happening because it you, you have to be alive for like 20 to 30 years to then go, oh man, there used to be this cultural anchor point and we just slowly like suck the life out of a person or we've we've continued this oppression because it's not instantaneous and like the reason i use that brian stevenson quote is because the south lost the war but they won the linguistic battle like they won the linguistic battle and now their philosophy of ethnocidal division oppression is still being applied because they Mm -hmm. they they controlled the language and america is really prone to embracing or adopting Mm -hmm. that southern ethnocidal language uh and Mm -hmm. that you can find that in in our constitution just the notion of like states rights or the three-fifths compromise Mm -hmm. where these oppressive individuals get a disproportionate amount of influence of shaping our society than they should like just Mm -hmm. you know just the notion that slave owners in the south got more representation than non-slave owners in the North due to the Three-Fifths Compromise. That's crazy. And then, like, Mm -hmm. America's first presidents were mostly, except from John Adams, all from Virginia, one of the largest Mm slave-owning states. Like, they tipped the scales of the future of America due to the fact that we had allowed them to embrace the ownership of human beings. But, like, after the Civil War, they won the language battle. So if we want to start creating equitable space and to dismantle ethnocide, we have to win the language battle. And then once you, mm-hmm. and then once you have the language, that language can manifest itself into art, into all sorts of disciplines. Because not everyone is going to read the dense book. Not everyone's going to like necessarily initially have a word resonate. But like if you can get that word to resonate via like a photo or a painting, mm-hmm. or, or a mm-hmm. sculpture, then people get it. And that's what Europe did during the Renaissance. Like, that's that's how mm-hmm. these complex philosophical ideas in Italy became spread throughout Europe because there'd be these great paintings by Michelangelo or whatnot that embodied these ideas. And so you do the philosophy first, and then you have that bleed into art, and then you can have sustained activism because 
people or it's easier to have people be like emotionally engaged when there's a really solid philosophical mm-hmm. linguistic foundation because like words are going to be the same whether you're in a good mood or not mm-hmm. but like you're going to be in a mm-hmm. different place if you're in a bad mood so when those people mm-hmm. like lose energy and or, or becoming ambivalent or whatever mm-hmm. if they can go back to the word or a book and that like can refocus their energy now activism mm-hmm. can be more sustainable and i think in the u.s sadly like ethnocidal people in the south they have a very clear philosophy of how they want to undermine equality in the united states and that allows them to come up with strategies that last you know 60 years 100 years mm-hmm. and you, we like progressives will think that we've made a lot of change and then we wake up and it's like whoa all this stuff happened and, and you talk to a conservative person and they've been doing this for 50 years because they have a really clear philosophy um mm-hmm. and that's so like for progressives to be able to counter that there needs to be a philosophical foundation with mm-hmm. like re like a, a reclaiming uh, mm-hmm. of the language to shift the discourse and so that's what i try that's what my work goal is and as a journalist tra- writing about race and culture i noticed that people weren't seeing what I was trying to see because I was using like the existing discourse. So I had to, Mm -hmm. so then I decided to like inject myself in with new words Mm -hmm. to reshape the discourse. And that's the goal of these words. That's the goal of the think tank. Um, Mm -hmm. Working, being at Eaton's quite helpful because there's a lot of artists and creatives here that can help Mm -hmm. manifest my work. And, you know, Mm -hmm. now we can have a zine with like a lot of photos and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And and it, it makes it more accessible and mainstream that that's something i wanted to ask you about because i saw that one of your questions was really how does your philosophy align with the reasons i started eating and given and do you pronounce it evtopian yes evtopian okay yeah, that, that so you was just that, a v just it's a v okay. you know yeah, what you were saying about um evtopian um it's actually amazing that you made this distinction because personally i i have been obsessed with this utopian concept Mm -hmm. uh for me striving for utopia for justice for um liberation has always been a very compelling concept but i have had people critique it to me saying hey well actually did you know that utopia literally means a place that doesn't exist therefore you're like striving towards this impossible place of justice that can never be achieved which they said is quite sad so I think by even coining the concept Evtopia, you've solved that for me. And wow. with Eaton, our, my original inspiration was to reclaim this space of commerce and hospitality that didn't usually have a deeper meaning and to really try to um, envision a world where, where we are liberated to be our truest selves and also recognizing that when the individual is liberated, not in that freedom mm-hmm. America way, liberated to be our true selves without being oppressed by um, repressive or oppressive structures, that when that individual has reached that uh, self-actualization, then the collective is also simultaneously fulfilled. Um, one of my favorite quotes is by Subcomandante Marcos of the indigenous uh, Zapatista uh, community in Chiapas, Mexico, who fought for indigenous rights. And he has this quote that says, 
in our dreams, we have seen another world, an honest world, a world decidedly more fair than the one in which we now live. And to me, it's that uh, striving for that, I'm going to use your word now, utopia that is that equitable, equitable space, the town hall, and really envisioning Eaton, even though there are limitations to it, because it is still a business, mm-hmm. but ultimately this very idealistic stance to trying to create this town hall where we really are equitable and we approach it with these progressive values and try to create a space where it is a platform for artists, activists, thinkers, journalists, writers, such as yourself, philosophers, to you know work together and really collaborate to create this more just world that all of your work is focused on. So I was just curious, given that me just expressing to you like the background and Mm -hmm. guiding inspirations behind the creation of Eaton. What has your experience been, you know, working there day to day, the people you encounter, the panels, the talks, the thoughts, the artists, and then also even having Eaton now be a supporter of you to produce or publish the zine of these ideas, I guess, how does it all tie together? So, you know, I, I, I couldn't, <laughs> it'd be hard to say something bad about Eaton, to be honest. Like, I've been a member here since, I think, the first day. Um, we, um, I, I came to Kintsugi to get coffee with a friend one day. I didn't even know this hotel was, like, a thing. Um, and so... When I walked in, the fact that it was called Kintsugi was like blew me away because I'm a big fan of Kintsugi and a lot of people don't know about it. And I've been telling people like this this Japanese practice is is you should know about it because DC is such a place where everyone focuses on perfection and being and you know it makes everything really stale. Um, and so Kintsugi, it's a philosophy that speaks to that that natural philosophy that places create so that they can survive. And so, like, you know, if you understand that people aren't perfect, you now have to make a philosophy to show the imperfections of life and people and allow people to feel good about their imperfections, which is, like, in many ways the antithesis of what DC tries to groom people into being. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I just really liked that the coffee shop was called that. And then I left my meeting, and there was a sign saying that there was going to be a workspace and I was working on like this film project at the time, which I'm still working on. And I said, all right, I need to get out of my house and collaborate with people because film is way more collaborative than just writing articles from my house. And that was October last year. And I became a member on November 1st. And this project, this zine, has come out pretty organically from me just talking to people at Eaton. Like... Like I said hi to someone and he asked me what I did and I told him this stuff and he was like, this is fascinating. And then I told him how I felt that my work, if it's manifested in an art form, can make it more accessible because I'm not expecting everyone to read my dense stuff. And he was like, that's great. And this guy's a photographer. His name is Kurth Bob and Kurth is providing all the mm-hmm. photos for the zine. Thanks. Okay. So then Kurth and I are collaborating about figuring out what we should do and he had spoken to Ryan. He's like, we should get, grab a meeting with Ryan. Ryan said, mm-hmm. uh, we're supporting zines. I'm like, well, I'm a writer. I can make a zine. Curse a photographer. He can make the photos in it. Let's do mm-hmm. it. Let's, let's make this happen. And then from that point on, uh, then uh, Kurt, as you know, who used to run the, the house, he was all about it. 
and then Emily mm-hmm. was all about it. And then when Kurt left, mm-hmm. Kurt left, Emily stayed like the point person. And then as it mm-hmm. came time to produce the zine, we needed to find a designer. Mm-hmm. And Candor Labs, mm-hmm. they are, are Eaton House members. And they designed the mm-hmm. scene. They're actually recording this phone call, this this Skype, mm-hmm. so that we can put it in there. And they're gonna, so like mm-hmm. all of this has happened just very organically. And like I had a philosophy, like mm. the philosophy that I've articulated for like for impact. It's that it's that three steps where you have philosophy first, mm-hmm. and you collaborate with artists and creatives, and then that manifests into like consistent activism. So this mm. was just an idea that I had in my head that I thought could work. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but Eaton is shown that it, there's a could be mm-hmm. a lot of legitimacy in this philosophy because the people like Candor and Kurth, like I haven't like mm-hmm. given these people an outrageous amount of money or anything to like coerce them into liking my stuff. They genuinely think mm-hmm. that these are ideas that are beneficial to them and they are excited mm-hmm. and want to collaborate with me. So like I come to Eaton every day and people are happy to see me. You know, mm-hmm. like, like the people that work there are glad that I'm here. Uh, also, like Emily and Alicia are really like they're really mm-hmm. well read. And like like Emily, no, Alicia, like like minored or majored in linguistics. And and Emily mm-hmm. lived in Japan. And so they mm-hmm. have a repository of like books and words. And so even when I need to like come up with a new word, like I'm writing a book right now on these ideas and a word mm-hmm. that I created to go in that book. Because I'm coming up with a lot of one, a lot of them. Alicia and I collaborated on that word, like mm-hmm. we made it. So that's incredible. Yeah, it's the the, the word. Uh, I'll tell you, it's a French. It's a French word, and it's it's what I consider the opposite of laissez faire, uh, uh-huh. and it's laissez retenir, and retenir means to hold in <laughs> French. And so, like in an uh-huh. ethnocidal society, the goal is that the people that are the oppressors or the ethnociders. Uh-huh. They try to hold existence. Uh-huh. Like they don't let it do. They just hold mm. it. And so that creates, and then that goes into mm. like existentialism and like Kierkegaard, where like the still, mm. the, the, the stillness of, of uh, the stifling of freedom that happens when people try to make the infinite finite. And so like Laze Retinier mm. is trying to make life very finite. And as an African American mm-hmm. that lives in a society that's ethnocidal and governed mm-hmm. by laissez retinir, the, it's dependent mm-hmm. on making my life incredibly finite and having somebody mm-hmm. else hold existence. Mm-hmm. But like that word, like that word came out of like me and so and Alicia and a couple other because there were some other French speakers uh, at Eaton at the time, just like jamming mm-hmm. and and like brainstorming. Mm-hmm. So I like eating quite a bit. I'm here all the time. Um, uh, I, I I would love to be able to figure out ways where I can have like more impact because mm-hmm. to be honest, the, the doing a, launching a think tank out of out of here provides mm-hmm. an opportunity that DC think tanks don't because nobody travels to a DC think tank, you know mm-hmm. like. But people from around the world come to Eaton. And so if there's like philosophical concepts that people can come here and mm. get and then take with them to wherever they're going, now you're mm. creating a network for just like massive change that mm-hmm. you just no other, like 
No one gets on a plane and stays at the Brookings Institute for five days. You know? It doesn't happen. But people do that at Eaton. And, mm-hmm. you know, so there's, anyways, there's a lot of stuff that I, like, mm. organically, from seeing what has happened just at a very small scale, when now Eaton's getting engaged, which mm. clearly, like, it's the proper time, like, it's game time. But, man, the impact that could happen for creating sustainable mm-hmm. change, where, like, people could come here, get philosophical concepts that were, like, developed in-house, and then be able to take them mm. to wherever they are and and, and create conversations like that's incredible wow this is incredibly inspiring and moving to hear you talk about because for me having the idea for Eden was just a seed and a concept on paper or in my head similar to your ideas originally in your head and now they're going to get articulated printed manifested published beautifully you know encapsulated in this zine and like you just said literally for me like Eden has taken on a life of its own I never could have predicted the story that you just told me and yet even you the seeds that you're planting with this zine and with putting these ideas out into the universe ethnocide eftopia um laissez retinir the laissez retinir putting those ideas out there like you can't even that's going to take on a life of its own which is so insane to me that the layers of ideas and seeds that I tried to plant now have taken root with you and your planting seeds. And who knows where that's going to go? Like you just said, it is this place, a transient place of locals and travelers, you know, people like-minded people, or even touching people that were not of like minds and literally not knowing the ripples that those are going to create in the universe. That's actually quite insane and amazing. Yeah. Like I'll tell you, it probably took me, a month or so just to wrap my brain around the fact that people liked my ideas at Eaton because mm. the process of coming up and creating your own words is really uh, sloppy mm. and isolating because you sound crazy until you have the word mm. you know you're just coming up with words mm-hmm. that might make sense but then don't and now people think you're saying something that mm-hmm. doesn't make sense um, mm-hmm. and just coincidentally the time that I like left my house to work on a film project, that is part of the grand provision of SEL. I had words that made sense. And now, instead of people saying, that's a neat idea, Barrett, eh, whatever, like people wanted to collaborate mm-hmm. with me and like make these ideas even more. Like that, mm-hmm. I, it really was very hard for me to like not feel like a surrealist notion when I came in to eat every day. Mm-hmm. And now I now I feel normal. Now it's now I like I'm like okay cool dude, people get it, uh, but whew, it was weird for a while. Mm-hmm. One thing I'd love to ask you about actually I have many thoughts that come up, but one of the first ones is almost when you're talking about this, I guess even pollination strategy or pollination life that's about to take place, uh, the life form of these words and ideas. Do you have any thoughts about how Eden? or even our networks and communities around the world, because we also have an Eden in Hong Kong where great historic and political change is also happening right now. I guess, what are your thoughts on this distribution or pollination strategy for how Eden and our affiliated friends and networks can help? You know, once the zine is published, what can we do to actually pollinate and distribute it and ensure that the zine and the words and the ideas have the greatest 
chance at also existence and thriving and growing beyond our control. So there's a lot of things. Like what happens to a zine, you know, after it's done? Like what can we do with it to really get it out there? Not only do you, should the zine get out there, but it needs to foster community. Um, mm-hmm. Where next thing you know, it's, it's uh, you know, there's newsletters or, or gatherings and places. Like you don't just get mm-hmm. the zine and put it down and don't look at it. Like if you like right. the ideas, <laughs> you sign up to like a newsletter and just you have to trust that Eaton is not going to, you know, mm-hmm. try to exploit you <laughs> from, mm-hmm. via email. But like once you have mm-hmm. that, that data set, of emails and people, you can start engaging them with with mm-hmm. with surveys and, and and communal gatherings. And like the thing that's really fascinating about having the think tank concept is that think tanks reach out to people and ask them questions all the time for the greater good. Like mm-hmm. people aren't expecting that they're getting asked something to make money or to like get mm-hmm. extracted. It's like I need your information because this information is going to go into helping me influence policymakers to make the world a better place. And so people can be more mm-hmm. receptive to like collaborating in that regard. And so like the think tank component mm-hmm. of this project in a place like Eaton that has a, like a local national and international reach can really grow in many ways to start like dictating mm-hmm. change. Not just having like the change makers mm-hmm. come here and have fun, but it's like we make it. Like we have policies, mm-hmm. you know, and then that brings into like a whole new notion of like what um, mm-hmm. what like a business for good is, you know, like if someone feels that if they stay in your hotel, they're going to leave with good literature and their information mm-hmm. could impact like the world in a positive way via like policies or something. People will get mm-hmm. it. People are going to get excited. That's way better than like giving like some kid a pair of mm-hmm. shoes, you know. Uh, so like there's the network potential that can happen in all of this. Um, mm-hmm. I think the word ethnocide, like mm-hmm. as an American, clearly I'm applying it to like my lived experience because mm-hmm. I haven't lived another one. So I can't tell someone exactly how ethnocide manifests in their environment, but it definitely mm-hmm. manifests in other people's places. And I could say from looking at you know what's happening in Hong Kong right now, is that the mm. conflict that's going on there isn't an, an ethnocidal one. Where like Kong, mm-hmm. Hong Kong people are trying to sustain their culture as being Hong Kong and not in this larger whatever policy of China. And this mm-hmm. Chinese invasion, not invasion, but like, you know, tension mm-hmm. is due to they feel their culture is going to be eroded. That mm-hmm. is an ethnocidal tension, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and it's kind of like, it's funny, like China is one of the best places to have this discourse because the Communist Party there straight up said they were having a cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't even say cultural revolution in a positive way in America because mm-hmm. of these, like the Chinese, you know, mm-hmm. connotations. So if there's a cultural revolution and there's a, a, a group of people in Hong Kong that are like, we have our own culture. We don't need to be part of that revolution. We can still be beneficial members of the society and keep our culture. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a language to help articulate that. Mm-hmm. And right now, there isn't. Like the language that people use a lot 
is the language of democracy and democracy is great but like democracy is politics and politics right. is, is all power dynamics because the people are allocating mm-hmm. power to representatives so even if it's like they use the power well or they use it negatively it's still power dynamics so democracy mm-hmm. especially when like the ideas of democracy are coming from america there's going to be like you're going to be undermined because america's ethnocidal so like even like today you know i'm sure I know I'm following all this stuff regarding the Houston Rockets. I don't know if that's something mm-hmm. like definitely the the tension for that is that they're expecting American, you know, woke progressive people to speak up and say something in defense of Hong Kong, but mm-hmm. they're not because China has more money and they're like we're going to let we're going to be dependent on China and that's going to trump our democracy. Like we'll silence ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because our mm-hmm. culture is to rely on other people's stuff or to take other people's stuff, not to have mm-hmm. our own distinct cultural beliefs. Because when power comes into play in the politics, China right now has more has more buying power. So the NBA ain't going to say anything. And so there's a clear silence that's happening mm-hmm. that's due to not having the word ethnocide and not having it mm-hmm. be something that's like actively discussed. And so mm-hmm. I, I think... You know, it's it's very serendipitous that Eaton is in Hong Kong because this is probably uh, the largest example that's getting the most global attention of a culture mm-hmm. clash, like a cultural mm-hmm. tension where like like Hong Kong's not trying to like go into China and kill a bunch of people. Hong Kong just wants to like be Hong Kong and say, hey, yeah. we're Chinese. This is our culture. We don't need mm-hmm. that stuff. Don't worry, like we're not gonna harm anyone. Yeah. We just got our stuff. That's just culture. That's it. And so I, I think in many ways the zine and the language of ethnocide can be applied to Hong Kong quite a bit. And you know, uh, one thing that is interesting is is translation. Like what kind of mm-hmm. like, what would what would the word ethnocide look like in Chinese? Like mm-hmm. that's that's big. Now we start having some big conversations mm-hmm. about that and so i think there's a whole bunch of stuff that can happen uh, because mm-hmm. ethocide happens at every level of society and it doesn't necessarily happen across really clear like racial distinctions like the u.s mm-hmm. it's it's, mm-hmm. it's in many ways uh like a desire to like erode equality in culture due to having like believing you have the power to do so you know and that that can happen in any dynamic. Speaking of China, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but I mean, one of the photographs, journalistic photographs that I saw recently a few months ago that broke my heart is, uh, have you heard about the Uyghur Muslim minority ethnic group yeah. in China? I saw this photograph of some grown, you know, hundreds of grown Uyghur men sitting in these basically identical jumpsuits sitting in a classroom learning Chinese or being forced to learn Chinese in these detention camps where they're being held up to, according to journalists, you know, in what the one to three million range. And they're just there. They're not, as far as we know, not being killed right. as people, but that is a really haircut. One of the most clearest, I think examples of um, ethnocide today. And I also think that going back to your idea of, reimagining these um 
this think tank that you're building at Eden as the agent of change. So almost subverting a place of business as a place of being an agent of change and also being this new 21st century town hall built on this, these Evtopian values um, that I think, I think a good example is also, I don't know if you remember Afropunk. Mm -hmm. I remember when it came out, the documentary in the early 2000s, and it really united all these kids who, you know, were people of color or black in, in this white, predominantly white punk scene. And then not only was it a documentary, it created this movement and then it became a festival and it became this gathering and this community of friends that started hanging out and bonding all about all on that one shared notion of mm -hmm. Afropunk. So I, I thought that was a great example of how what you're building here with Eaton or under our roof right. could potentially also lead to this kind of movement or like you said, shared communities that are even beyond our control and imagination, which are going to take on a life of its own, which is really, really inspiring to me. Yeah. No, I, so one of the big visions, the big initiatives that I have is, um, are you familiar with Day of the Dead? Like De Los Muertos? Yes. So, yeah. So my girlfriend's Mexican and I learned about Day of the Dead through her. And it, it hit me that like America doesn't have really that out, you know, as a national type of thing. It's it's like if you're Mexican or like Guatemalan, you do something like that. But what that is, it's like an Etopian practice where they annually will create a safe space to talk about their family members, their loved ones. They invite people into their homes. They strengthen their community. They help people collectively cope with trauma and grief. Mm -hmm. That just they do that every year, and they just don't mm -hmm. think anything of it because it's just always there. But like in the African American mm -hmm. community, we do stuff like that in response to tragedy. So like Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. you know, after someone gets shot, then we make these altars, then we make this, you know, we, mm -hmm. we do it. And so like my initiative for this project for SCL because there's the educational component. Where you know, like mm -hmm. letting people raise awareness of ethnocide, Ethiopia, printing the stuff, you know, that stuff. But then there's like, what's mm -hmm. activism look like? Because if you don't have activism, you're basing, you're assuming that the, the 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 underlying structures of society are adequate, and that if people just learn more, they'll do they'll do better. But it's like, no, no, no. Like, if you have a revolutionary idea, you have to entertain the idea that the existing structures aren't adequate. So then you have to mm -hmm. be active. And so mm -hmm. Day of the Dead, I think, is the be one of the best modes of activism that we can mm -hmm. do in America. But the key thing is to extend it outside the Latino community, bring it into the African-American mm -hmm. community and make sure that more Latinos, you know, like Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, engage in it in this American way, because that mm -hmm. creates these equitable Evtopian spaces mm -hmm. as an annual celebration that brings together mm -hmm. communities of color. So like my film project that I'm working on is about that. And like this year, I've mm -hmm. already teamed up with two groups to put altars on at, uh, to put Day of the Dead altars mm -hmm. on at, um, at Eaton. And mm -hmm. so the, it's nice, but here's the key, here's the, the kicker, is that Day of the Dead happens right before the national elections in the U.S., Mm -hmm. So what happens is a month before the, the presidential election, Latinos and African-Americans potentially can be making altars to tell the story of their people, of their society, coming together. Mm -hmm. And then what, like, 
November 2nd, it's over. November 3rd is election day. Like Barack Obama won in 2008 because of early voting, because he got black people to vote during that mm-hmm. month. That is Day of the Dead. And so part of my activism for this year for SEL is to collaborate with these artist mm-hmm. communities with this philosophy of Aptopia and apply it to Day of the Dead. So that if we mm-hmm. target the proper places like El Paso and Texas and, and you know, mm-hmm. Chicago, whatever, that we'll see what happens. If mm-hmm. it results in like a, a sliver of Latinos to vote that didn't vote, like we're on to mm-hmm. something because they're going to be engaged. And, you know, I've already, since we're in D.C., I've already reached out to like, you know, like mm-hmm. Cory Booker and like the Castros and stuff like that to see if they'd be interested in making an altar to tell their story. Because they're not going to mm-hmm. be, they're, they're going to be out of the race by that time. We all know this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they can be the people that tell the story. So like that's what part of my vision of activism. Mm-hmm. Because as a think tank mm-hmm. located in D.C., having concerts and those cultural engagements are fun. Mm-hmm. But if you're located here, let's get mm-hmm. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez into the mix. And now we start mm-hmm. making some real change. Now, now stuff's mm-hmm. real happening. Like we do that. We release policy papers, you know, there's surveys of people, all sorts of stuff happening. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's really like outrageous the amount of, uh, of stuff that can, that can mm-hmm. happen uh, just due to like the existing mm-hmm. infrastructure of EE. I feel like there's a million more questions and topics that I want to discuss that, you know, are coming to mind as you speak, but I have to run to my next meeting, but before I leave, I wanted to just make one more comment or question to you about how one of the missions of Eden is really to create a platform for underrepresented and marginalized voices, people, storytellers, and artists. And I just wanted to say that the work you're doing is really, you know, making everything that we do worthwhile, knowing that you're creating this work under our roof, using our platform and our resources and our community, like makes a lot of what we do meaningful, especially I think with your background in philosophy and how you're literally subverting the dominance of like Eurocentric uh, classical thought, subverting it and then really giving back voice to the those who are underrepresented and marginalized throughout history. So I think that's super powerful. And I just wanted to say that. Thanks. This episode of Bad Faith Podcast was produced in partnership with Candor Labs. To learn more about production with Candor Labs, log on to candorlabs.com. That's candor with two A's.